0: So, welcome to the Open Source Startup Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Robbie from Cowboy Ventures, and I have my co-host Tim Chan from Essence VC here. And we are very excited today for our guest. We have David Kramer, who is a co-founder and CTO of Century, which is a very well-known platform. But if you're not familiar with them, it's an application monitoring platform with almost four million developers and 85,000 organizations using it. And they recently became a Try Unicorn, raising at $3 billion, and they've now raised over $200 million. So welcome, David. We're very excited to have you.
1: Cool. Thanks for having me. I'm excited for the conversation.
0: Awesome. So I think we want to start way, way back in the beginning, in the Century founding story. The project was around for a few years, it looks like, before you decided to leave Dropbox and take it on full-time. And that's a pretty unique story these days, where you have a lot of open-source projects that are founded and then raise money and start an independent company right after. So maybe walk us through the earliest days and why the project was started and we'll go from there.
1: Yeah, I think especially when you have open source, I like the community. And so I would just build a lot of open source things. It's kind of just that like interaction with peers and whatnot. And so Century is just one of those things sort of the premise was it was really annoying to deal with the SRE on the team or whatever we call them at the sysadmin and to ask for access to logs. And you generally would need it because like you've broken something and you're trying to figure it out, right? And so it was just a simple idea of put an error on a dashboard so you could just see what the information was. And so very, very simplistic, no ambition, no anything. At the time I was, I guess, somewhat prolific in the Python Django ecosystem uh, the open source community there. And so Sentry, which was called Django DB log, very creative name, was just one of many things that I had done and was used by a lot of community members. And I think over time, I don't know why I particularly continued to develop this versus many other things, because it wasn't the only product I had built, but it was one that I think captured enough people's attention and was interesting enough to keep working on that, you know I just kept spending free cycles making it better and improving it. And eventually I joined a company called Discuss, sometimes pronounced Discus. It's a comment widget that doesn't really exist anymore, but it was a big YC company back in the day. and they were using it. And that kind of encouraged me to make it even better. Because frankly, it was not very good in the early days. It was just like, it's open source. You're just kind of like building stuff, right? Anyways, they use this. So I, I'm like, you know what? I'll just make this better than what it is and fix some problems. And I think that was kind of really what kicked it off. And then just spent you know a couple of years doing that. And then somebody that worked at Heroku is like, hey, it'd be cool if you launch this as an add-on. And I think they worked on the add-on marketplace. So it's it a little bit in their interest to do that. And I'm like, oh, cool. It'll be like beer money or something. Just like, again, no ambition. That's the theme throughout this. And little did I know you had to build a cloud service to launch an ad on Heroku. I thought it was just like you packaged up the thing and somehow they ran it for you. So I remember I convinced my co-founder, Chris Jennings, who does product design to come on and like sort of launch this because you got to register the business to charge money. So we did this like legal zoom thing, which never use legal zoom, no offense, legal zoom, but like it was a pain in the butt to set up the LLC, convince him to come on board and help me out basically to make it look better because we both appreciate design and then spent two weeks at the end of the year over holidays, building a SaaS service out of the the open source app. And that kind of really kicked off like the business side. And, you know, I just grew organically from there over a couple of years. And I think eventually, you know, things get to a a point where push comes to shove and you're like, okay, what am I doing with this? And that's kind of really where it transitioned from side project to, okay, this is a real company and let's figure out where it's
2: going. Yeah, it's really amazing because I think Century started 2012, right? The projects.
1: The projects from 2008. Yeah, I think the
2: business might have been started in
1: 2012. Sounds about right. There's a lot of weird milestones when you have like a a hobby project turned lifestyle business turned very wealthy VC funded company. So
2: yeah, and I think we'd like to maybe just talk a little bit about because when you actually start a company, it sounds like it's around 12 or 13 days, which is super early when it comes to open source based companies, right? There isn't that many examples out there. And I'm sure there's not many people or models can follow. Was there any open source based, I would say company or any model that you think, okay, this is actually might be a path for us to actually start off as a business model to pursue
1: or? We weren't intentional at the time, but what I would tell you is WordPress is the only thing out there that I really thought was similar in terms of what it was doing, how it approached it. And to be fair, the how is super important in open source. And what I mean by how is usually license restrictions and how you monetize it because there was like open source stuff, but I remember the conversations and they were super frustrating for me back in the day. Is we'd get compared to like Cloudera or something. And like Cloudera is not an open source company. I'm sorry if I offend people, but like it's not, it has nothing to do with open source. It's an enterprise company built on top of some open source tech. And then you had companies like GitLab, but like open core is also not the same thing as open source because like at the end of the day, like usually those companies, the model is like, here's a kind of janky open source project. And if you want the stuff that actually functions, pay lots and lots of money. And so we didn't really have much in terms of models to follow. And the only saving grace was, it was an infrastructure business, like it's a complicated to scale. So it's a clear cloud opportunity, right? For software as a service. And I think we just got lucky that it kind of fit naturally well in that space. And that meant there was like a very crystal clear path to monetization and people were willing to pay for it, which I think also helped a lot. That said, it did not make fundraising or anything any easier at first. So.
0: And because you've had the benefit of having a good amount of history with the project, was there something that happened where suddenly you were getting certain kinds of requests from a certain caliber of company where you thought, okay, like now is the right time or what was that tipping point where it just finally made sense to start a company?
1: Yeah, I think it was just like, there was no risk at one point. So I remember Chris and I both worked together to discuss and we had kind of gone our separate ways. He went to work for GitHub for a period of time. And I I did a little short stint somewhere then I went to Dropbox and Over time, we started to develop more and more revenue, right? And it got to a point where like Chris actually quit his job first, I think like six months before me, and we were able to basically pay his salary, maybe like slightly reduced, but we were able to match his salary, with just like company profit. And when I quit, it was the same. I could match my salary and we were able to make our first hire. So essentially super profitable, super profitable. I mean, relatively speaking, of course. And I think it was more that like, I am super risk averse. And even today in Century, you'll see, if you try to read into what we do as a strategy, it is very much like, how do we minimize failure situations? Even if that's not how I'd speak publicly, I'm like maximize failure, just move fast. But it was like, I wanted no risk. And so first few years of the business, made some money, we'd spend it on like attending conferences or sponsoring fun events, just having fun, right? And then it's like, oh cool, we can just pay our salaries. And coincidentally, at least for me, so like, because my co-founder's technical, so we can do UI and stuff, of course, but he's not doing the infrastructure code. He's not doing the operations side. I also ran or like set up, I guess, a lot of the business side. So actually, suffice to say, I had my work cut out for me in terms of like the load on me. And I think around that time, Dropbox was getting into what I would call big company politics mode, where they grew super, super fast. It didn't feel super interesting, the work I was doing anymore. And it felt like I was more just dealing with like Corporate policy more so than building interesting stuff, and, and coincidentally at the same time, Century was becoming very demanding of my time. So it went from like you're enjoying spending your evenings maybe hacking on it and you feel good about it because maybe you'll you'll get more customers and they'll be happy and you know it's great. To oh no, there's another uptime issue or like there's a lot of support ticket. You know, like it became a, like a literal job instead of a fun hobby kind of business on the side. And so it kind of made it like either well quit Dropbox or get rid of Century somehow and. I don't know how we would have gotten rid of Sentry unless we shut it down. But given Dropbox was frustrating me personally at the time, it was like, you know, we'll just, we'll do this Sentry thing. And you know, that worked out pretty well, I guess. So
2: I was looking at the sort of like the earliest interview you have, at least from the blog, right back in 2013 from a stack share talking about the original story and I guess what's nuance, like you mentioned, there isn't much open source project, WordPress seems to be one of the ones and looking at the stats, You mentioned already 90% of people using it are not paying you anything, right? I'm sure venture capital isn't like super happy about that kind of numbers back in the day. And also there are other solutions like Ruby has, you know, Airbrake and you're coming in from Python, I guess because of Django's original Mm -hmm. story. What was like the biggest, hardest things you have to overcome when it comes to perception, when you have to start a company around this? Is it just open sourceness? Everyone would not pay you? Is it like competition or is everything above or? Yeah. So I think it's interesting because
1: you don't know what you don't know. And I don't care to learn that much about the VC community. Generally speaking, I'm just, I like building things. And when we were fundraising, it might have been typical, but I found it very frustrating like lots of the stereotypes of what you hear about on the internet with founders and like getting ghosted and all this stuff and just like a lot of time wasting. And I get that's how it goes, but it's like the objections were, well, it's open source. How are you going to make money on it? And I'm like, but we already, we had 2000 paid customers. We were profitable. We already made money. We could pay our salaries. Come on. Oh, it's selling to developers. Like, what are you going to do with this? I'm like, it's fine. Like developers pay money too. You know, we are early in that game, but it's true, right? GitHub was already a proof point. So it's not like it was unknown. And the fact that like we charge like I don't know, seven or nine dollars a month, something like embarrassingly low, which made sense when we had no cogs. Right. And it's like, well, how are you going to like up the ACV? And I'm like, it's fine. We'll just get them to pay a couple grand a year. It'll be okay. We'll just get lots of customers. (laughs) And pretty much everybody was just like, this guy knows nothing about business. And in my defense, I know nothing about business still today. It's just like, I'm very committed in my like belief of like how to do something. Fortunately, it's worked out a lot of times, but it basically went through, like, I probably talked to like 15, like at least small partner pitches. And everybody just like ghosted me. And then I met Dan Levine in Excel and he knew me from Dropbox. And also I think he was a little bit ahead of the rest of the market and sort of believing like one, the developer tool chain thing, being a, like a basically developers having purchasing power is like the conversation. And then maybe not the same way I believe it, he believed in open source. But again, Excel might have called like cloud era open source at that time. So not quite one-on-one, but it, it was like a very tricky thing. And I think it was mostly tricky because like we had a lot of evidence that people would pay for it, not evidence that they'd pay a lot of money. And maybe that's worse than not having any evidence at all. Right. Whereas like many other, like, I remember I have this friend and like, I love the guy, but like they raised at a higher valuation, more capital than we did. They literally had nothing. They didn't even have an idea really to speak of. And I'm like, come on. It's like, we already got a good amount of revenue going. But after that, I will say after we got in the door, things were a lot easier because like people could see the proof points. And then we had people like rallying with us, which I think was a really important moment in time.
0: And it's so interesting because there are so many companies now that are selling to developers and they have a ton of use cases and different examples to look to. But at your stage, how did you even think about how to price and how to think about like value points and was it a lot of just testing and iteration and knowing the community well, or like, what was your process at that point?
1: I'm a big believer in stealing things. So there's a company called Airbreak. They still exist. Once upon a time, they were bigger than us. We just copied the pricing model. You know, they must've done some research, right? Now, I don't know that they did to be fair <laughs> and it didn't work out perfectly, but that's all we did. We're like, you know what, somebody else charges this way. Let's try it and see what happens. Worked totally fine. It got us to the next stage and then in the next stage. And after that, I actually think I'd probably spend a disproportionate amount of time on pricing and packaging, which I think does actually matter a lot. And we take it from a very simplistic point of view of like, how should I reason about this as a customer? Even down to like, we have a team plan. That is, it's like, these are the features you need if you're a single team. It's like very plain and simple. And then the pricing economics or per unit, effectively is like, you don't actually get a lot of choice, frankly. And so ours was just like experiment until like the cogs were good, until it felt fair and competitive. Like we basically have a rule, we can't increase the minimum price tag, which I think has done very well for us over the years. But I I always question if it's like more art or science. I think we got, I don't think we got lucky. I think we spent enough time to try to figure it out over the years and we were willing to change. Like we're about to launch like a new, revision later this year, which isn't drastically different, but it's quite a bit different than we've done before. And it's just like, you got to kind of believe this story around it versus the science. Like we paid some big firm to come analyze everything for us. And what I will tell you, they, they gave us would not work whatsoever. So
0: Yeah. And I remember the first time I heard about Century a number of years ago, it was kind of bucketed as a crash reporting tool versus now it's an application monitoring platform. So would love to just talk through how you thought about the positioning of the company and kind of where you started and what you learned about where a developer tool company should start solving maybe a more specific, like more understandable pain point, and then moving into something much bigger.
1: Yeah. The challenge of starting a business is like, you've got to figure out a product that makes sense. And I actually, I do not envy the founders who don't know kind of what they're after. Like mine was just a lot of domain experience. And we're just going to like brute force the thing until it feels good. And the feeling part is super important for me. Like I've learned over the years, just go off your gut and like, many, 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 many decisions. And ours was always like, build a product that we love. Let's keep getting more customers on it. And I I think like, we've still not really hit the point where things have slowed down to where we had to be like, well, okay, this no longer works anymore. Centuries, I don't know what we've given for public numbers, but we've roughly gained like 50% customers year over year or whatever. I think it's year over year, which is a lot like at our scale, like, and and, like we have the 8,500,000, whatever it is. I think we say something like, don't quote me on this because the number might be wrong. There's something like 50,000 paid accounts in that ballpark, right? Maybe it's a little less, maybe it's a little more, but it's a lot of paid customers. It, it's a lot to the point where it's more than every public APM vendor in the entire industry combined. And that is like a big deal, right? And to be fair, any VC who bet on us, bet like based on that concept entirely. And so for us, it was just like, keep building a thing that people love and keep focusing on the people that love it. And that is like what I always tell product people is like, don't go ask your customers what they want. Find the people that kind of agree with you and just build something for them. And hopefully you've done like enough questioning that you believe the opportunity of what you believe in is significant. Because then at least you're gonna have people that are right aligned with you. You're gonna be doing a thing that is like not distracting because it's very focused. And that's kind of all we've done. We're like, the air monitoring thing has a way to do it. We're gonna build it. We're gonna go deep. It's gonna be highly technical. It's gonna solve our problem the best it can. And we're just gonna rinse and repeat that for every single programming language in the world that's kind of all we've been doing for like the last few years. Now we've laid it on more since then to try to expand the business and like kind of think about what's next, but that's still a core is like that concept, but just like repeated with the exact same customer in mind. And that's like a very big part of like centuries. Like as you grow, one of my learnings is like alignment is probably one of the biggest challenges. And so I had, I like, I've had all these points in time in centuries career where I frankly just have to argue with people over and over about the exact same conversation and, One of them recently was, I'm like, we spend so much time talking about, oh, the edge manager, the VP or all this. I'm like, what if we just never talk about this again? And we say all investment goes towards the developer. And we just say, that's the rule. And then we don't have to spend any more time on these conversations. And that's kind of a thing we did recently. We say, if we spend $1 at the very least on EPD from our R&D investment, that $1 only services the developer. There are no other personas that touch our application. We just, we're not worried about them. And that's actually like a controversial thing, to be fair. Like a lot of business people will be like, what the hell are you doing? And I think that's totally fine. You can do things your own way. You know, everything has a path to the end. But that to me is like one of the most important aspects of what we're doing, because I think it's the thing that causes a lot of companies to ultimately fail over time. And it's the lever we're going to use against the big public companies that compete with us ultimately. So
2: So I'd like to dive deeper, actually, because you mentioned really interesting about it's like product sense, right? You need to actually have a gut feeling. We can call it taste. We can call it unique insights, whatever that's called. What are some of those... That you remember are really crucial in early days. That we are either like philosophies or way we engage with the communities or something like that that really made Century stands out to the developer crowd. Because I, I realize now, looking all the companies today, many many people want to go after developers, but don't seem to get any word of mouth for traction. And so I assume these two things are related. So I just wonder, like, what are the, actually the product insight or sense that you can able to concretely say a few examples of that? Okay, this is actually not an obvious thing and we made yeah. it right.
1: I think the first thing I would always encourage folks is, like, authenticity. Now, that looks differently with different audiences, right? Like, you've got to speak to your audience in, like, a way that is absolutely authentic. Like, for us as, like, developers, it's like, we know, like, these are the things we care about. We should just talk to them about, don't be fake. Don't talk to them about stuff that's irrelevant or, like, try to masquerade something as something they should care about. They're going to see right through it kind of thing. I don't think that's developer specific to be fair, but like what you would do for a tool that's for developers versus for management or customer operations or something is wildly different at the end of the day. Like we all have different things that are top of mind for us, right? And so I think that's one. I think the other is like, this has been interesting and challenging for me over the years. Like I've tried to give up control in the company because I think ultimately the opportunity of the company is much bigger if it's not relying on the few, right? And I've not been able to figure out how to do that yet. And I think one of the challenges is like, You kind of need a single source of truth, or you need like a single direction to drive you forward. And so what I mean by that is like, I have a very strong opinion about pretty much anything, but specifically about our our product in this case and about like how it should function and what that end-to-end experience should look like. And I think those things can often be hard to articulate and they are very like domain driven and instinctual. And so like, I'll give you an analogy. I recently asked a bunch of internal teams to just like throw away their, their roadmap. This is like three weeks ago because it just didn't feel interesting. It didn't literally feel, I use the word feel a lot because I think it matters here. And I'm like, look folks, we're building a lot of stuff. Nobody uses any of this stuff. And by nobody, I mean like a small percentage, right? Why don't we get back to like, what is the core and why that core is so valuable and think about how we extend that core. And for us, the simplistic version of Sentry is it's basically automated JIRA or automated ticket tracking, right? It's like, we can identify bugs or other problems, give you the details, help you kind of get like through that resolution workflow faster, right? And so we built this performance product as an example. It has none of that. There is no like we identify the problem for you. It's just dashboards. And we have enough dashboards in life. We don't necessarily need more. Sometimes they're useful, but like we don't need more dashboards. Just like I don't need more chat apps or anything else at this point. I've got plenty. And so I'm like, folks, let's go back to like why Century's is good. And it's good because I ship something to production. It breaks and, and it's like a ugh moment. It's like I want to like I care about that. Like I don't want that to be the outcome. I want to fix it. Right. So empower that outcome. Like, think about that. And so I asked people to go back and like, we basically have this workflow where we like send you an email every time there's a new bug. And hypothetically, a new bug happens when you change code. Realistically, there's a lot of variables that go into that. So that's not always true. And sometimes it just like breaks in terrifying ways, that, that pattern. And so I'm like, let's go back and solve this in a better way. Just revisit the whole core of what we do. And then also let's go back and make sure we're building that workflow that people actually care about that, like makes them happy. And I think it's hard to measure happiness. You can say NPS and all these other things, but it's hard to measure like happiness and emotional like response, like positive response out of something. Everybody's like focused on business metrics and all these KPIs and stuff. But I'm like, if you can excite people about what you're doing that, like you shouldn't do anything that doesn't excite people is kind of how I test it, right? And then you align what you're doing with like sort of that core persona and sort of the constraints you put in the direction that you want to invest. And so for us, like the direction is kind of like, well, we're focused on the monitoring angle, right? And productivity is like, like kind of the investment there. And so that, that's kind of how I think about it. But I, I think the, how to get people to sort of like measure that emotional impact of the customers. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know anything about product for what it's worth. I've always been just like a strong, high throughput IC in my career. And so a lot of this I just make up as I go, but like that's how I've always thought about it. You just want that emotional, like very positive outcome and everything else will come from that. Like you'll find a way to charge money. You'll find a way to like add more value, but like you've got to like focus on that as like the objective. And I think, you know, if you talk to lots of people, which when you do open source, when you go to conferences, when you speak at events, you talk to lots of people, you kind of know if you're nailing it or not. And I think the strength of founders, or at least people that should be founders and probably succeed to some degree at it, are like, you just really, really care. You just keep trying until something fucking works. And I think people do not appreciate that that is not easy. Like certainly many people do, of course. But I think from a product angle, it's not like you're just going to figure it out. And it's not going to be, you can't plan for any of it either. You kind of just got to be like, we're going to keep trying at this. We're going to like make small changes over and over and over. We're going to be okay with being wrong. And eventually something's going to work. And that's kind of how we approached it. And I, you know, Century was not great from day one. It was kind of janky. And over time, it just got better and better and better. And we just deepened the tech investment. and, And even today, like it's got lots of flaws and it's the same thing. It's just like, keep making it better. But I think that driver towards like the emotional response is like the most difficult part.
2: Yeah, I really like that emotional response. Because obviously a lot of monitoring tools or developer tools are just trying to solve a problem. And so the outputs, the way you feel using a product doesn't seem to matter as much. I guess related to that, because you mentioned a lot about how you needed to scale from you being the one basically doing everything. Now having to scale up a little bit about how to get the teams to be able to actually align in some of the what is important, what's not important. One of the strongest thing we see seen most strong IC engineers don't do well, is actually able to communicate about this at all, right? This is, I just know, but nobody really can understand or get aligned with. What did you have to learn over time to be able to just not, hey, I'm the one in charge kind of thing, right? I'm actually getting everybody to understand what that means. Is there anything that you learned from the communication or, or anything related?
1: I don't know that I've learned much <laughs> from that regard. I am very much like I have a hard time articulating kind of what I mean, but I'm sure it's it's painful for some people that work for me. I, I think my challenge is I often fast forward. I just sort of jump to like what conclusion I've made versus sort of how I've gotten there. Unrelated to that, because I've not necessarily gotten better at articulating, but I the secret is probably slow down. I just, I'm incapable of like really slowing down. The things that I've sort of learned and recognized have changed over the years. And I think that honestly, it's like, it's relevant based on what's going on around you. And this, like all the context around you. So for us, like for right now, it's like cool COVID happened. Nobody meets each other. There's no hallway track. There's no whiteboard sessions. We've hired another hundred people. We're like 250 or something. So it's like, the context is like, okay, we're like 250 people. There's been a lack of like accidental communication and like all these other things. And so I'm like, okay, maybe the solution in the near term is over communicate. And like, uh, like Very visibly follow through and remember that email is important and Slack doesn't solve the problems there. And like just kind of recognizing the flaws. And I'm very much like a fundamentals person. I always look at something and I'm like, why? Like, why does this need to exist? Like, everybody hates dealing with me in the company whenever they want to like buy a new tool because I'm like, why do we need this? Like, is there not a better way to spend our time? And it's because I'm always about, again, the fundamentals of like what's going on here. And so I think for me, especially lately, I'm like, okay, we've got good strategic goals as a company. That's important. That's a step. And my like takeaway from it is that, like, I still can't connect to those goals because I always try to put myself in like an IC's shoes, because as an IC, I never understood what the hell the companies were like trying to achieve. And frankly, most of them failed. So like, maybe they weren't actually doing a good job of it anyways. And so I'm like, okay, we've got business level goals that technically we can reason about from an EPD angle as well. But What are like the EPD specific targets that are inspirational and that like, we feel like are gonna move the needle, like in a significant way versus just business as usual. People talk about OKRs and everything, but like ignoring the framework. My like most recent realization or my at least thesis is you've got to continue to distill these down into like really big items, very interesting stuff that are like big, hard challenges that people feel are going to be significant. They might not work, but that's fine. And then just like really like communicate those consistently, like over and over and over. And I think that's something we've messed up a lot over the years or I've messed up is like we often talk about something and then we stop talking about it publicly and we keep talking about it privately and then you play telephone and eventually it just becomes a mess versus like, hey, let's give the company an update every single month on this really big, important thing. And if there's nothing to update, then why not? It either is not important or we're doing stuff that's unrelated kind of thing. And I don't have the solution yet, but that's kind of like how I thought about it a lot in recent history. And I I think it is very much that communication and really continuously forcing the conversation about strategy. Because I think especially early stage company, especially like I did the CEO job for a number of years, there are just so many things you end up having to deal with, but there's like strategic efforts in basically every function, right? There's how you're going to approach go to market. There's how you're going to approach hiring people. It's how you're going to approach R&D or product. And I think it's easy to get distracted by making one important and ignoring the others. And I think this is probably something we did over the years. And for me, I think that's been resolved by like us hiring really good people to take on those other conversations and then making sure we're all aligned and we create that sort of echo chamber to some degree. I don't have a solution, but that's that's kind of like how I've seen the problem manifest and like at least how we're approaching, attempting to solve them. So
0: yeah, so not only was Century early in being an open source based company, but also, early to figure out how to scale that model. And scaling an open source company is really tough, as you well know, just based on the number of users and Signal, and you're juggling trying to figure out paid users and support. What did you learn about scaling an open source company when you didn't have a lot of examples of how a good scaled support model looks for a company like Sentry?
1: Yeah, so this one's actually probably interesting and maybe not controversial, but people would not expect. So, Sentry, Full open source, you can run it yourself. You could have forever. We've got a license that basically says, New Relic can't sell our code. More or less, that's what it says. Otherwise, you can do whatever you want with it, completely self-hosted, no strings attached kind of thing. And Century's always believed in that model of like, we have this internal value called for every developer. And it's very much like Sentry should be the only solution because if it's not, what is the gap? And so open source, we started as like open source thing, built this small cloud service, and you've got both. You got people running it. They're often big, big logos like, early days, this is like Prime, Airbnb, Uber, Eventbrite, like all these Instagram, like all these big companies running open source. And you're, you might think like, cool, you can monetize that. We did not. We thought we could, we did not monetize it though. And I actually don't know, maybe one of those customers uses our cloud service. I'm not sure anymore, but um, we had this challenge of like, okay, we've got effectively on-premise self-hosted software and we've got cloud. Those are two very different companies. And I recognize that. And I always optimize the business around how I wanted to spend my time. And this is the advice I always give founders is like, there's lots of ways you can do things. They can all work just fine. Pick the one that's most interesting to you. And I did not want to sell on-premise support or build an on-premise sales motion or build on-premise, any of those things, right? Just not interesting. And I think we can all agree that that's probably like the right decision from a broad, here's how the market's played out with cloud services and stuff. But we had this complication for many years earlier in the company. It's like, hey, we want to enterprise sales we just need to sell this thing and i will tell you even early days investors thought 100 we were just going to be like an Elasticsearch or something or a mongodb not a chance all because we said no it's not happening and so we actually i think had three support contracts over the years and we chose not to renew any of them and we said cloud is the only thing we do we're happy to like give it to you for free we're happy to like maybe sort of help you but unofficially kind of thing because like we got other stuff to do we're building a product not an operations team for you and it was just like the choice of like focus on the SaaS service it's more fun, it's more interesting. We get a new product and just don't worry about the rest. The rest is noise. And so that was kind of our commitment. I again, I think we did well early on because we had cash flow and it helped. And frankly, all we did was hire engineers for like the first 20 employees. And it, I don't want to say accidental because it's like accidents are not really accidents. It's just like a bunch of things happen that work together well. But I think we sort of had this business that just grew well and we took a fair approach to pricing. It allowed us to get lots of customers, which meant like. Even churn risk was super low. There's a period of time where like you couldn't pay us more than $200 a month. And it's frankly because we just didn't want to spend the engineering to make it possible to pay more because we just were doing other things at the time. Uh, and there's many times throughout history where we just, we gave people free service instead of charging them more, or we'd have like gaps in how we build and we just didn't care. And it was all about like, it's like a approach to like a consumer company. Kind of if you thought about like Facebook early days or something, it's like you have to have the intense belief that like. There is inherent value, or rather, if there's value in what you're doing, you'll find a way to monetize it that's fair and like fixes cogs. And that's kind of how we approached it. And it was just like, we had the financial freedom to do that, like with VC funding and all, but we're just like, you know, we're we're building a cloud company. We charge for a subscription fee. We don't need it to be closed source to do that. We'll be fine. And it worked out. I mean, I'm sure it could have gone a different direction, but I think the particular thing that trips people up in open source is like, there are a lot of different models and like open source is not like an industry. It's like open source is just an attribute of something. And it also means like 20 different things. Because like Cloud is a version of open source. GitLab is a version of open source. Century is a version of open source. There's, um, I'm not a Rails developer, but there's this like library that people use to do offline processing and asynchronous work called- um, Celery or? It's Celery, but for Ruby. I can't remember what it's called. Anyways, the guy that built the thing sells like a, an enterprise version of said library, which is not a common business model at all. That works for him. Probably doesn't work for most other people. Just like Sentry won't work for most other people. And that's where I say like, I actually think the product you're building is more important than the open source piece. Open source is just kind of like a way to do business, but it doesn't really, it doesn't change your business model. The business model connected to the product at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I think what we've seen with folks who've been really successful is they've thought about their product first and foremost, and it it hasn't just been based on the community growth. So you said the first 20 folks at Sentry were engineers. Who was kind of in charge, And maybe it was everybody, of community and actually interacting with the entry community? Because that part's usually a little bit new to engineers who haven't done a lot of open source, or maybe all of those engineers had some open source experience, but kind of like who was doing the community management piece early on would be really interesting to hear about.
1: It was just early engineers. So I was very, very big in the Python open source ecosystem. One of our early hires is uh, one of our VPs of engineering, was very big in the JavaScript ecosystem. And it, just in the sense of like, we like to go into conferences and get like free vacation. And we'd give technical talks, not about our companies, but about like interesting work or something, right? Our first hire, like much bigger in the open source scene in the Python scene, that was our community. It was just like, we were authentically ourselves. We cared about what we were doing. We were in the conversation. And I think that can't be understated because we've not been able to manufacture that. And to the point where I'm like, folks, I don't have time to do this anymore. I'm like much older than I used to be. I'm like not going to go speak at all these conferences. And like I sent this email out the other day, I'm like, who wants free vacations? We'll send you to Europe or wherever you want to go. We'll pay for all this stuff. Go speak about something interesting. It will help your career in like ways you will always remember. And it's going to be beneficial for Century too. So it's a win-win kind of situation. And that was what it was. And that is, to me, that is a secret. And it's talking about like domain relevant stuff. And I think this is a thing like DevRel teams often miss because it's like you have a DevRel team that's going to like Making a fun, jokey presentation—it's like that's brand. That's that's not education. That's not community. That's that's just brand advertising, like buy billboards. It's the same thing. Like it'll be just as successful, if not more. But like you've got to like actually be in the conversation. You've got to be like qualified to be there. You've got to give like value. And I think people misrepresent what value is a lot of times. Like I tell this story. We talk about this internally with the sales team and stuff. Like Century's deeply technical. It's hard to have a deeply technical conversation if you're not an engineer. So how do you enable a sales team to do that? We've not figured it out entirely yet, but I think it is like, how do you truly add value to the day-to-day? And that goes back to being authentic. And so community for us was just that. And and my agenda these days is I'm like, how do we go back to those open source roots? And not the fact that it's open source because it still is, but like engage in the open source community. That's like the most important part of open source. And so for us, that's like, hey, what, what if we throw away JIRA and we do everything on GitHub again? It's just like a forcing function, right? Or like we start putting product roadmaps on GitHub discussions They may not care whatsoever, but they'll be there. So if they do care, they have an opportunity to engage. And that engagement thing, I think, is super key. And so we're still trying to figure that out at our scale now to kind of like reboot that process. But I think the fundamental thesis of how and what it needs to be is correct. We just haven't done it yet.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And for you personally, so you've kind of gone through a bunch of different journeys within Century, like hyperscale early in figuring out what an open source business model looks like. Um, You've been CEO and CTO. What phase of the company has been the most challenging for you and what have you kind of learned or what kind of tools did you lean on that you think would be helpful for other founders to know about?
1: I think kind of getting to that mid-level maturity phase was probably the most difficult for me. And what I mean by that is like, we've got a business, product is kind of doing stuff. We need to like get off of our butts and actually build the go-to-market function. And you know what you know, and you don't know what you don't know kind of thing. Like, I don't know what marketing is. Like, I don't know what sales is. I most of the time dislike salespeople that are in my inbox nonstop or I had to change my phone number recently because they wouldn't stop. Like, and I'm like, I don't want any of that. How about I just never hire those people and we call it a day? That was kind of my persona for the first few years. I was so anti these functions. I've grown to appreciate what they can be, not what they are necessarily, but what they can be. For example, we don't do like automated cold campaigns and things like that because they, they don't work. So it doesn't matter anyways. like, it's just a waste of money. But that was hard. And like hiring executives where I did not understand the job And I don't want to understand the job either, which is why, like, eventually I'm like, I don't really want to be CEO. I just am because nobody else is, right? And, like, somebody's got to do it. And, like, I'm not going to let somebody, like, do worse than I can do, kind of. But, like, hiring executives and like, sales and marketing, I found extraordinarily difficult. And I found it difficult because some of these functions are black and white, what they are, if they've been good at their job, or, like, qualified, I guess, for that. And that's one Plus, are they going to be a culture fit, which comes in a lot of different ways, right? It comes to size of company and it also comes to like style of company. And that I found it very, very difficult. On the counter side, and what I say is like, I struggled through like hiring a sales, I don't know how many sales leaders we had, but several sales leaders, marketing leaders, I just couldn't figure out what the right kind of person was for our company. And it was just so draining over time. And on the counter side, like our CFO has been at the company for like four or five years. It's great. I had no idea he was qualified either, but all the finance candidates, at least like they kind of came off the same and the same level of qualified and stuff. I'm like, well, he believes in the business. I'm going to go with my gut on this one. Again, going back to like, go with your gut. It's like the most important thing. But like, that was draining. That was like very, very draining because like one time I had like 25 direct reports. I'm like, I don't even know what to do. I'm also not a people manager. I'm like, what am I doing here? I guess I'll just do lots of one-on-ones. Is that what I'm supposed to do? And it's just like, again, going back to the founder, you would know, have like, nobody should like envy or pity founders because like, we often get stupidly compensated, but the job is also a nightmare sometimes. And so <laughs> I think it's a double-edged sword. There were just so many of those moments where you're like, I oh, got to deal with this thing. I really don't want to deal with this, but like, if I don't do it, nobody else is going to do, hopefully I can do a good enough job. And then even like when I decided to hire a CEO, I'm like, I wouldn't say I'm humble, but I have a very specific kind of ego in the sense of like, I don't care about like being CEO. I have... I'm like kind of the person of like I have so much confidence that I just assume I have power in whatever conversation, anyways. So I don't need like that version of power. And so even when we were doing the CEO, it's kind of like, oh, this is like a breath of fresh air after we started talking to candidates. Beforehand, I'm like, oh, is this gonna be like all the other job searches where I'm just like, I don't know how do I tell if somebody's good or not? You know? It was not. It was very easy to like dial that in and, and believe in people. But there was a lot of just stuff, you know. And I, I think it's like, congrats to the people who like love that, that pain. I did not. So this is why I do different things now.
2: I'm very curious about the guts, right? I, I've already asked that already, but, you know, maybe I'll, I'll double it down again. Because I think a lot of times our insights or instincts comes from, like, prior experiences as well. And you mentioned you worked at GitHub, and I think when you talk about the culture, when you talk about the things you're doing, it actually reminds me of GitHub right away, right? The way the culture is operating there. Where does that gut come from? Like, is GitHub a prior influence or other parts of your job history? And what are the specific things you really think, I, I want to bring this my company at Western.
1: Yeah. So I was Dropbox, co-founder's Gail, but that's fine. It's the same kind of thing. So what I look at is I look at the failures of everywhere I've been, which might not be failures, but I see them as failures. And I say, let's not do that. And that's the only thing I can learn from. Because the positive things usually don't apply, or you don't know how to make them apply. I'll give you an example of the positive. Dropbox, phenomenal at new grad recruiting. Top of MIT, they crushed it, didn't understand it. Was that the best thing they could do? I don't know, but it made hiring like new grad pipelines phenomenally good. It still created challenges in senior talent and stuff, but like, great. I'm like, cool, let's just do what Dropbox did for hiring and we'll we'll crush it with hiring. Did not work whatsoever. Our new grad stuff is good. It's a different kind of approach though. And so I think it's hard to replicate success, but it's easy to understand failures. And so it's, and I'll also use Dropbox in this one just because Dropbox built one product and that was it. What else were they doing with all the resources and all the money? There's a reason Century has tried to build multiple products as of like a year and a half ago when we're like 100 people or whatever it was, right? It's like, because that's what you've got to do eventually. Why not do it now when you can kind of thing? And that's like Atlassian did that. They did it really well. GitHub took way too long to do that as, as well, as an example. With The Microsoft changeover, and I, I don't know GitHub internal, so maybe this is not, I'm taking away credit, but GitHub going from source code to also GitHub Actions, to me, it was long overdue. It's like an obvious vector. I'm like, why didn't y'all do this? should have just done this beforehand. It's a lot easier to talk about it than to do it, of course. But those are examples of like ways I think of like that company could have been so much more if they had done this. And on the counter side, even the persona thing, I look at like, we're very competitive internally. So I like to poke fun at New Relic and any big company I can basically. And I look at New Relic and I'm like, they built a great product once upon a time. Like it nailed it for the developers like 10 years ago. And then they built a bunch of other stuff that had nothing to do with that customer. They built like an analytics thing, they built some uptime monitoring, like things that were just for different people. They messed up. Like that's where they squandered their opportunity. And that's why like everybody's out to eat their lunch now and doing a good job at it, unfortunately for them. And so that's where a lot of this stuff comes from. And I think the gut, the way I think about it is if it doesn't excite you, just say no. Like if there's anything that worries you, and usually worrying is like a lack of excitement, say no. Now, you won't always be right if you say yes, because you're excited, But you almost never be wrong if you say no, because you're not feeling it. And this is kind of, I looked back, especially when we hired like, like some mismatched folks for the company. It may not be them. It could be like, they were not the right person for the company. But I always thought that like in some of these conversations or like we build something, I'm like, ah, maybe it'll work. I don't believe in it. It didn't work. Like it it would always be like, should it just trust our instincts here? Like if it doesn't feel right, it's probably not right for us. And on the counter side, when I was doing the CEO search, I'm like, you know what, I don't know what a good CEO is. Cause like, I don't know what a CEO is first off, but Melin, for example, very passionate, which is important because the job is draining, smart, excited about the product. Like all these things, I'm like, you know what, he must be qualified. Cause most of the people are qualified just like within a, within a constraint. And so I'm like, I don't know, like my gut tells me he's like exciting as somebody that like I would want, like as part of the company. So let's just go with it. And I think it's worked out very well. And so I think it's just that, like that feeling, like, I I swear to you, every mistake I made was like where I, or at least like the ones I could have avoided probably, were where I didn't trust that feeling. So
0: awesome. And one question we love to ask on here, because our audience is a lot of open source project owners thinking about turning that project into a company or their other open source founders who are earlier in their journey. What advice do you want to give other open source founders on ways to think about like company building, hiring? particularly around like first-time founders too, because I know you're, you're also a first-time founder and often are a lot of open source-based founders. So what are kind of like your big pieces of advice for them?
1: Do, do more with less. I think a lot of people overhire thinking more people will let them move faster. And that's usually the like far-flung opposite of true, right? And I think there's a false belief that you can sort of pipeline things and do a lot of work in parallel. I certainly believe this because that's how engineering even works. It's like usually not true. More people comes more, more challenges and more problems, but in the sense of like, just things you gotta solve along the way, like scale concerns. And so I think too often people try to grow too quickly, even big companies for what it's worth. Like Dropbox went from like 300 to 1300 in like 18 months or something. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like what's with all the people? Like nobody gets to work anymore, right? And I think people don't understand that sometimes. And and I'm sure there's things I don't understand about it either, but I could see the pain of like, what that does to like teams and stuff. And so. I think early days, it's just like, it's especially important. You know, free money doesn't last forever. Everybody has had it easy for a little while. We did not have it so easy in the terms of like, we were not getting a ludicrous amount of money for nothing. And to be fair, I think that also helps. Like putting those constraints on you actually makes you work more towards like the finish line, the target that you actually need, versus if there's just not that pressure, it's too easy to just do a bunch of stuff that is just irrelevant kind of thing. And that's what we do is a lot of stuff that may or may not be relevant sometimes, but we just do a lot of stuff because like there's so much going on and we have the freedom to do it. That sometimes it's hard to be like, oh, maybe we should dial this in. Maybe we could be doing better spending these resources. And I think, you know, again, going back to like just believe in something, like have an opinion and prove the opinion right or wrong at the very least before getting distracted or maybe getting convinced. Convinced is probably the better word. Um, distractions I think are actually okay sometimes because they, they're they like energy and they like it's excitement. But if I had listened to a lot of people early days, Century would, hopefully it would still exist, but it would look wildly different than it does today in the sense of like, oh, we should build enterprise sales right off the bat and all these other things. Like we would certainly not have nearly the number of customers we have right now. And I think we would struggle a lot more if we tried to build that kind of company. Again, I'm the believer of like the product is more important than the open source angle. The open source angle is like a competitive advantage in so many ways, but I think it's more an advantage when you build a market share company, which I think is e- equally important for us. Like if you're going to build an enterprise company and five people are going to use your product, open source is irrelevant. You might like it and that's cool and you should still do it, but nobody's going to care at the end of the day. Right. And that, again, that's like fundamental like to Sentry. It's like we wanted to do market share. We wanted like everybody to use Century, So open source helps enable Apple.
2: Awesome. This is really, really helpful and valuable lessons for everyone, including us, actually. So Thank you so much, David. Thank you for coming on and hope you enjoyed the podcast so far.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me.